This morning and this evening, I want to look at a couple psalms with you that speak of God's love going to the nations and God's steadfast love to the next generation, a theme I hope is appropriate as you reflect and pray and commit yourselves anew to God's mission near and far. This morning, our scripture is Psalm 45. Hear the word of the Lord. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You're the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he's your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many-colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? O oh Lord, you alone possess the fountain of living waters. And so we pray this day, O oh Lord, knowing we have nowhere else to turn and asking that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Psalm 45 doesn't come out of nowhere. The book of Psalms is divided into five smaller books, books one through five of the Psalter, and Psalm 45 is the fourth psalm in book two. And if you pan back to Psalm 42 and you observe what's been lingering, where the psalmist's heart has been inclined, you observe a pattern. In Psalm 42, the question is raised with deep angst and sorrow, why are you cast down, O my soul? Psalm 43 speaks of a still further shrill tone, vindicate me, O God, 
Sorrow has been matched by opposition and challenge from without. Psalm 44 takes matters to yet another level as the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, how long will you sleep? At this point, the psalmist names what he so often calls out, the need for God's deliverance, the cry that God would intervene, and honestly, candidly, powerfully, the description of the pain, the sorrow, the agony, and the lament that is ours. And some of you are there this day, I'm sure. And sisters and brothers around the world in places like Ukraine or the Middle East, many other spots, they know the need to lament and to express sorrow all the time. And all of us, some of the time, know the power of being invited to speak, not merely our joys and triumphs, but also our struggles, our weariness, our sorrow before the Lord. One of Christianity's great gifts to the entire world has been the language of lament. It's why the birth of the blues comes not merely from a particular state, but from a religious tradition, learning from the Psalms that we are given the gift of speaking every circumstance before God. He opens his ear and he invites us to cry out with all the pain all the agony, all the suffering that we experience in this corrupt and sinful world. All the pain and all the agony that we sadly often inflict on others because of this corrupt and sinful heart that we ourselves bear. And so lament, the 70 Psalms of lament, the single most common genre in the Psalter, is one of the great and profound gifts of Christianity to the wider world. We have a candor, and honesty about what life is really like. But Psalm 45 suddenly appears, and this is not a lament, and it doesn't strike a minor key. This is not a blues song. This is a song of joy and of gladness. We see it signaled at its beginning in verse 1 and again in verse 15. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, and eventually with joy and gladness they will be led along. It's a psalm that speaks not only of what's being experienced in the here and the now as a prince and a princess are described, but of its effects, its spillover benefits to the next generation and to the nations well beyond them. This morning, I want to give attention with you for just a few precious moments to two ways in which this psalm reminds us That for all the gift it is that Christianity addresses our suffering, our corruption, our sorrow, and our sin, we dare not forget that the God revealed in the Bible is content with nothing less than his glory and our happiness. And this psalm speaks to that joy, that gladness, the way in which his goodness pours forth so that you are not merely surviving and eking it out, but you experience that happiness that God longs to provide. Though that happiness may not look like what we'd assume. Two things we can see as we consider the way in which this psalm, Psalm 45, speaks to our happiness in God. First, if we look at verses 2 through 9, we can see very briefly the way in which 
this psalm describes how human happiness, profound and lasting human happiness in all manner of circumstances, it depends on just this sort of God. These verses focus upon God the King and the way He is described. Verse 2 says He's the most handsome. Verse 3 begins to describe Him as having splendor and majesty. Verse 4 again speaks of majesty and of victory, of a power that is exercised in awesome deeds. We sometimes express a hesitancy about the language of power and victory in leaders. We've learned to be suspicious. We are a long way past Watergate and however many scandals of which we're aware the way in which the powerful so often seek to exploit rather than to enhance. We have a cynicism that is deep in so many of our bones, suspecting that the language of power is always the language of self-interest. And yet the Bible here and elsewhere speaks of God as being victorious and powerful, mighty and awe-inspiring. It does not hesitate to use those terms and to name God as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to promise, as the gospel does, that eventually the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And yet there's something remarkable about this powerful king having this sort of God that can enhance rather than rob us of our happiness. There are, in places far and wide in this world and throughout every age, powerful and mighty ones who long for all to do their bidding, that they themselves might be enhanced. That they might eke out and leech off the resources, the gifts, the happiness, and the joy of their people. But not this God. Notice what the psalm says just around its language of his victory, of his might, and of his power. We see, for instance, in verse 4, he rides out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. We see in verses 6 and 7, his throne, which is forever and ever, is a throne where the scepter of that kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. For he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This God who is powerful, this God who is almighty, is a God committed to the way of justice and of truth. He is not exploiting others to enhance his own position. He is rather reigning and ruling and extending his kingdom so as to enhance and bless others. And friends, you and I can know and name what the psalmist could only faintly expect. This side of the coming of Jesus Christ, of course, we know with a clarity the way in which this God went about that cause. Romans 3 tells us that in putting forward his son as a sacrifice, as a hilasterion or mercy seat poured out for the atonement of sins, we learn there that he did so that he might be just and the justifier. For in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. He wasn't content simply to 
shake the etch-a-sketch and start over. He wasn't content enough simply to say, I want this and that's the way it'll be. He was willing, willing to find a just way to justify the ungodly, you and me. And he was willing still further to put forward his own son, the precious and beloved son, so that in so doing, he might be just. He might demonstrate a commitment to his own law. He might be true and faithful as he's merciful and gracious. He has skin in the game at this point in his commitment to the truthful use of all his mighty power. Just last year, I was able to go and see the musical Camelot, which has been sort of reincarnated in a new version in just the last couple years. And whether you've ever seen that musical or not, I suspect you've probably heard of the Arthurian legend of Guinevere, of Lancelot, of Arthur himself ruling at a round table. And that legend, going back almost a millennium, continues to sit in our imagination, not for what's normal and typical. There is so much that's normal and typical. People fall in love, often with the wrong person. People vie for power and disappoint one another. You can watch the evening news or any TV show and catch those stories. What's fascinating is someone who has all power and who determines to exercise it in a radical way. Arthur and a round table. A king not seeking to somehow triumph at the cost and expense of others, but a king who longs to share what he has with others. And friends, that story doesn't come out of nowhere. That legend didn't somehow appear out of the blue. It appeared in a land after the gospel mission had been at work for hundreds of years. It appeared as English imaginations had been struck by the goodness of a true king who sought after and pursued those who would rule and reign with him, those with whom he could share the fullness of his joy and all the riches of his heavenly places. We often can be cynical. We can be worried and suspicious that anyone who has power, they must have an angle. And yet here we're reminded of what the Bible so often tells us, that the God revealed in the Psalms and the God who is most ultimately revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, that that God is a God who rules in truth, who exercises might justly, and who is committed to his reign being a reign that shares and enhances the joy and happiness of others. There's a second thing we see here as well. The second thing we see, if we look at verses 10 through 17, is that the human happiness described here involves a strange but beautiful dependence. The human happiness involved here, it involves a strange but beautiful dependence. Notice how there's a shift in verse 11. Verse 10 calls us to note the daughter, the princess. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. And verse 11 says something that is striking. The king will desire your beauty. He is handsome. He is glorious. He is majestic. 
He is victorious in triumph and just and true, and now she is praised. She is praised not only by the masses, she is praised not only by the nations, but God himself, the king, desires her beauty. Perhaps, like many others, some of you, you find a bit odd one of the books in our Bible, the Song of Songs. And there are many reasons we might find the Song of Songs to be challenging. It speaks the language of romance and love in talking about our relationship to God, and that often feels strange and a bit odd. For anyone like me who's a city dweller and never lived in a rural setting, it it uses the language of the barnyard to convey the beauty of God, likening him to the, the teeth of an animal. And it takes an imaginative leap to, to trust that this was a compliment in that day and age. But there's a more profound shock that we glean there and we see reflected here. It's not surprising if we're Bible readers that in the Song of Songs, this woman praises the king. This church praises Christ for his beauties, naming this and that feature, this and that attribute that are worthy of worship and praise. But what's startling is that in chapters 4 and 7 in the Song of Songs, in great detail, there is stated what we see so briefly named here. It's shocking that God praises her, that the king speaks of her beauty Christian, God delights in you. God delights in you not in the abstract. God delights in you not at some deep and great remove. God delights in you in your specificity. God delights in you, as the hymn named it, in the peculiar honor you bear. God made you. God has sustained you. God has guided your ways. And God, he sent his son He put forward a sacrifice, not so that he might be ambivalent eternally with you, not so that you might be good neighbors separated by a nice fence for eternity. God did all of that that he might delight in you, that you might be well-pleasing. And that's what we see here. The king will desire your beauty. We see this in Psalms 46 and 87, the way in which they name the glory of the city of God, that the people, they are glorious in God's own eye. They are made beautiful by God's everlasting grace. That just as God is handsome, so we by God's grace are made beautiful in God's kindness in Jesus Christ. But there's something further that we see about this beauty Notice immediately after that, our our beauty is marked by a selflessness. Verse 10 clues us in. Forget your people and your father's house. Verse 11 goes further. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. We are called to look away from ourselves, to look away from our past, our father's house, that which would have named us and given us an identity, We're called to look away from our own pride, what we might have built, what reputation we may have attained. We're called to bow to him. We're called to be directed and defined by that which is outside of us. Our beauty comes in that which we receive. 
Our beauty and glory comes in that which only God can give. I was struck this last year in a a single weekend. In a single weekend, I observed multiple events that stood out to me as being so strange and counterintuitive. I went to a friend, not a Presbyterian friend, but a, a friend serving in another church in town who was being consecrated as a bishop of that denomination. And I attended, and I observed that before he was going to be recognized as having a tremendous authority over a good many churches, he was called to prostrate himself. That others, from the young to the oldest, from those with great power and reputation to those unknown to almost anyone, that they would come and pray. It was a reminder that the kind of power that he might rightly exercise in the ministry of his ordained office was not his own. It was there before. It was dependent on God's grace. It was upheld by the prayer of others, and it was to be used for the service of a name and a kingdom, not his own. And then I went to a marriage ceremony, and I saw a a dear friend. She was taking vows to commit herself to her beloved. And before they were gathered there by the pastor to take those vows to be declared man and wife evermore, God's word was read. We were reminded that what they were doing and what they were going to be together wasn't ultimately about them. But Ephesians 5 was read and we were reminded that it was not about them ultimately, it was not even about us, it was about Jesus and about Jesus being displayed, his love for his church being proclaimed in the witness they would bear in good times and bad. And then the next day, I went to my own church where we welcomed roughly three dozen. And there were baptisms and there were vows and people who'd grown up in the church and others who'd scarcely known a thing about the church until just months prior. They came. And some were very accomplished and some were terribly young. And wherever they came from and whatever reputation they had, from that point on, they were named by the name of Jesus Christ. They were marked as his own. And whatever social networks they belonged to, whatever clubs they may have been a part of, whatever upward mobility they'd had or pursued, now they were identified with us, the body of Christ. Perhaps there's nothing more profound and significant to the wider world than our work and our love and our people. And I saw in those three events, sisters and brothers, young and old, Christians who experienced joy and gladness, beautiful happiness, not in earning a reputation through their work and employment, and finally being recognized not in viewing their love life as an opportunity to to find the, the one thing, the one person, or the sequence of people who might bring them great delight. People who looked at their friend networks and didn't seek to game the system by getting in with the right folk, but instead threw their lot in with the body of Christ, all of us. In each of those cases, they entrusted themselves and their happiness. They vowed dependently to be defined by God and his care. Now, you've probably not become a bishop this week, 
You've likely not been married this weekend, and most of us aren't being baptized today. And yet, I suggest to you, each of those are signs of what this psalm reminds us, the way in which the great God who longs to share his happiness with us and the nations, he is received and he rules over those who know that their beauty and their gladness comes in dependence. The Psalter ends there. In Psalm 149, before we get to the true finale in Psalm 150 about praising the Lord, Psalm 149 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Do you think of God as taking pleasure? Perhaps God takes pleasure in Christ and his work. But do you realize you are his work? Christ died for you. Christ lives in you. Christ is as committed to your cause as you could possibly fathom and then some. God sings over us with joy, the prophet Zephaniah reminds us. And the psalmist tells us that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. But he takes pleasure not in our strength, not in our wisdom. He takes pleasure not in our connections, not in our wealth. He takes pleasure not when we can stick our chest out and our chin up. He adorns the humble with salvation. As we think about our happiness, as we think about the next generation's happiness, as we think about the nation's happiness, let's remember that we have this God, a God committed to our cause, to their cause, a God willing to share the fullness of his riches with each and every one of us. Let's remember also the way in which, the path by which we enjoy that gladness and happiness. A way not of clawing our way up, but of stooping down humbly in faith to receive, to depend, and to trust. Let's exercise that trust by praying he write this word on our hearts. Lord, you alone have the words of life. Where else shall we turn? We confess we've turned so often to the sinful ways of the world, the devil, and our own corrupt hearts. Write your word on those hearts, O Lord. Grant us your grace that we might trust your steadfastness and we might cast ourselves upon your love. For it's in the strong and risen name of your Son, our Savior, even Jesus, we do pray. Amen.